This episode was originally a live conversation which took place at Star Summit 2022. Hey, you're building a company within the university, and the university is a nonprofit. If you build a commercial business within the university, you can't do that. We would lose our nonprofit status. So you you got to go out. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Well, hello, everyone. So great to see many faces here. Severin, very well, welcome. You are the co-founder and CTO at Duolingo, probably the world's most popular language learning app. And before we talk about that impressive story, I actually want to start with your personal background. You did study at the ETH here in Switzerland, but then you actually went to the US to do your PhD at Carnegie Mellon. So first of all, why did you decide to go to the US? Well, so I was a student at ETH in Zurich, and I've always wanted to study in the US for a while. And I participated in an exchange program with Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. That was like the one program that they had with the US. So I went there, and that's actually where I met my co-founder, eventual co-founder. And he convinced me to stay in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University and pursue a PhD. Um, which was never on my agenda. So I, I have a PhD now, but I've never wanted to become, you know, a PhD, like own, have a PhD or become a scientist. So basically a PhD by accident. A PhD by... <laughs> would you say that this is actually a good choice to become an entrepreneur afterwards, or would you skip that step and jump into entrepreneurship earlier? So I have to be careful what, with what I say here, because obviously it worked out for me. Um, but in general, I would say... Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so it worked out for me. Um, I never wanted to become, you know, like, a, like a, go into academia. And I would say you should only pursue a PhD if you want to become a professor, if you want to go into academia, if you really want to become, a, you know, uh, a scientist or a researcher, then that is the right choice. And that's probably the best choice. But if you want to start a company, you really don't need a PhD, especially in computer science. But you wouldn't wish that you did that differently, looking back. No, and, and <laughs> otherwise there would be no Duolingo. Yeah, so exactly. that's, that's how it happened. Yeah. So please talk a bit more about how you met your co-founder, Luis. Yeah, it's actually a funny story. So when I went there, uh, before I left, I talked to a bunch of professors uh, at DTH, and it's like, who are like the people I should talk to at Carnegie Mellon? And I had a list. And uh, one of those people on the list was uh, Luis Fonan, uh, my co-founder and CEO of Duolingo. And I, I, one day, I just walked into his office and it's like, hey, I'm Severin Hacker. And, and he was like, okay, what's, what, what's, who, who are you? Yeah. And I, I was Severin Hacker. Like, that's my name, Severin Bevadeji. <laughs> um, and he was like, oh, okay, let's talk. <laughs> so that's how I met him. And uh, we started working together on a research project. So, yeah. And actually, one of these projects was a computer science project. So that's how Duolingo originally started. Can you talk about these early days? Yeah, the early days. It was interesting. So we, we had this uh, research project, which was uh, uh, we got uh, uh, a grant from National Science Foundation, an NSF grant. So it was a research grant to pursue an idea that, that was, you know, Louis and my idea. And um, uh, it just got bigger and bigger. Uh, and, and, and at some point, the university actually kicked us out of the university and said, hey, you're building a company within 
the university, and the university is a non-profit, if you build a commercial business within the, comp within the university, uh, you can't do that, so we would lose our uh, non-profit status. So you, you got to go out. So um, they kicked us out, and uh, we had to raise money from venture capitalists, and, and that's how we raised our first uh, round. So was that and also basically when you decided, hey, now we're going to pursue this really as a business opportunity when the university kicked you out, basically? Yeah, yeah, they kind of kicked us out. Yeah, we were too big. Crazy. And what happened then? So you said, okay, we are out of university. So you probably also lost all the, the perks that the university gave you, like free rooms and stuff. So you needed to raise venture capital money. What did you do to make that happen? Yeah, so we raised venture capital in uh, our, you know, our first uh, round. There was a Series A, which was relatively small compared to today. Um, and, and that basically funded the business. So, so we left university and we just took an office very close to the university. Um, and basically everyone who worked at Duolingo was a Carnegie Mellon student or you know, for, associated with Carnegie Mellon. So um, that was the, the funding. And it, 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 it was actually hard to raise that first round. Um, but it worked because my co-founder, he had two previous exits, uh, successful exits. Uh, he had two companies that he sold to, to Google. Um, so they, they believed in his track record and it, it all worked out. So he was on the VC map to get funded again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, you were all the time, you were in Pittsburgh, you still are today. Yep. You didn't go to Silicon Valley. So I can imagine that this made things even a bit more difficult despite the track record of your co-founder to raise money. Um, it made it a little bit more difficult and we actually, uh, we did uh, you know, the Sand Hill Road tour, like in Silicon Valley, there's like this road, Sand Hill Road, where all the VCs are. And we went there, Luis and I, and we talked to all of these investors and they were like quite excited actually. And many of them wanted to invest, um, but they always ended with like, when are you going to move here? And we're like, uh, no, we're actually not moving. And you know, you could see like, you know, they look at their watch and like, all right. Oh. Um, so that was hard. Uh, but we eventually, you know, raised money from a, a VC on the East Coast that didn't care about us being in Pittsburgh, um, Unisco Ventures. It's crazy that this is still, or still was, a deal breaker back then to not invest in your company. It, it was a deal breaker back then. Funny, um, funnily, like later, the, some of these investors that rejected us um, came back and said, you know, invested uh, in, in later rounds. Okay, <laughs> so they fixed the mistake yeah. early on. Yeah. So let's also talk about Duolingo, actually, what you do. So before Duolingo, language learning was quite boring and also expensive. What do you do or did you do differently back in the days? Yeah, so, so um, we had an early observation, which is like, what is actually the hardest part? What is actually the hardest thing about learning a language? Like, what do you think is the hardest? I probably lose my motivation along the way. Exactly. So motivation is like the hardest part for most people. Like, you know, Duolingo is an app. You, you don't, we, we can't force you to use Duolingo. It's not a school or anything. Um, so early on, we realized like the main reason why people fail at learning languages is because they give up. So from day one, we, we made, made, you know, made sure that the Duolingo experience is as gamified and as fun as possible. So we invested tons of resources and we ran hundreds and hundreds of A-B experiments to make the experience as engaging as possible. So make it fun, make it gamified. Um, and, and that's kind of like the, the reason why I think we have, you know, way higher retention than all other apps um, in, in the education uh, sector. And I can tell you it's working because whenever I call my mom, she says, oh, I'm on this Duolingo strike. I, I don't want to lose it. I have to hang up and go and train my language. Yep. 
So I also wonder, you are basically, you have a free business model, so people can use the app completely free of charge. What are the challenges behind that if you offer something for free, but of course you still have all the development and marketing efforts that go into the product and the, the sales, basically? Yeah, it's a good question. So Duolingo's mission is to provide the best education and make it universally accessible. So not just languages, but all kinds of education. But what's interesting is that, you know, the, the, the next question is usually like, how do you make money? Like, exactly. if, you, if you give all the content away for free, like, how do you make money? And, you know, probably most of our competitors, they, uh, you know, they offer like one lesson for free and then they charge. But Duolingo, the content is actually completely free. Like, you can access 100% of the content within Duolingo for all the languages. Um, and that's part of our mission. We wanted uh, to make, it, make sure that people, uh, no matter their background, no matter their socioeconomic status, can learn languages, especially English, right? Which is like a, uh, an unlock for many people in, in the world. And so we struggle with this uh, a lot because our investors would ask, well, how are you going to make money? And for a long time, it's like, oh, we're just going to grow and grow and grow. And then at some point, we'll figure it out. Um, and, and, and today, we actually ha have a, a freemium model. So we have a, a free product that is, uh, you know, shows a little bit of advertising. Um, and then there's a, a, a paid product, uh, a subscription, where you can subscribe and, and, and it has a bunch of extra features. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it removes advertising and it has a bunch of extra features that allow you to learn a little bit faster. But it's the same content, so nobody's locked out, and, and we really care about that. What gave you the confidence to go down that path and really say, we offer everything for free, basically, of course, ad revenue, etc., but the core product is free and usable? versus doing what your competitors do? Was it really just a mission-driven focus? It was just a mission-driven focus. And you know, we hired people who bought into the mission. So if we had just like pivoted and it's like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to do what everyone else does and just charge up front, I think we would have lost 90% of our employees because they, they believed in this mission and still believe in this mission. And I still believe in this mission. And everybody believes, hopefully, right. in this mission. <laughs> and you also mentioned that you have the subscription revenue, but also the ad-based revenue. How do they compare? Which one is more important to you? Yeah, so today, it's probably uh, you know, more than 80% comes from the subscription. And well, you know, the rest is advertising. You briefly also touched upon the A-B testing, the experiments that you constantly run at the huge scale. How are you even able to pull that off? I mean, that's a massive technical skill that you need to develop there. Yeah, um, good thing. So, so we run these AP experiments. Um, you know, you have the two conditions control experiment, and we look which one is better. And we run hundreds of these uh, in parallel. Um, so each one of you, like if you open Duolingo, we actually see slightly different versions of Duolingo because we're in different uh, buckets, different conditions of these experiments. And um, that's kind of like that process and that technology that we have built to, uh, you know, make this happen is the secret sauce of Duolingo. There's not a single, you know, A-B experiment that's like, oh yeah, that one is like, you know, that's why we're like better than the other ones. Right. It's like the combination of them and, you know, the process and the tooling that, that we have uh, at Duolingo that, that allows us to run these A-B experiments. Um, so we have a team, for example, 10 people that just work on the tooling so that anyone in the company can run these experiments. So any engineer, any product manager can say like, hey, I want to test this feature versus that feature or this feature versus control. And um, we'll make it really easy for them to do this and then also analyze the results. Amazing. So it's, you know, people make the right decisions based on data. This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, 
a mission made possible with their 90 plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast growing Swiss scale up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. And I know this probably depends on the experiment, but what KPIs do you focus on during these experiments? Yeah, in general, we look at uh, three things. One is like, um, you know, how well does it teach? Uh, number two is uh, how engaging is it? Like, um, you know, do, do we retain people better with uh, this experiment? Mm-hmm. For example, yeah, so retention basically. And number three is monetization. And obviously we want to have experiments that are good for all three. Sometimes they're, you know, good for one and neutral for the others. But that's the three things we care about. And do you have an example that you can share with us as like one of the key learnings that came out of such an A-B experiment? Uh, key, key learning, as I said, it, it's the combination that makes, sure. it, uh, um, that makes it makes it succeed. But like, you know, even, even um, what's interesting with the A-B experiments is like even small changes can have big effects, uh, even now. So even like, you know, like changing the copy, for example, on the subscription page uh, can, you know, yield like big returns. Um, just even like sim- single words. Um, Crazy. I also want to talk about a few challenges along the way of building Duolingo. The first one, you know, language learning has quite a crowded space, so there's lots of competition. How do you think or react to competition? Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, at Duolingo, we kind of ignore competition, and, and we see like that our competitors, they obsess over Duolingo, and they copy us, you know, uh, copy features, and, and we obsess over users. Like, we rarely talk about competitors. Uh, we mostly talk about users and data and experiments and you know how can we teach better um, and you know how can we teach more. Uh, that's like what we are uh, obsessed over. I really like that take because a lot of you know early entrepreneurs they get obsessed over their com- competitors and just want to do what they do or want to be better than them. You just don't really seem to care. Is it really that data-driven driven approach that allows you to do that? Yep, yep. That's uh, actually we have uh, you know these operating principles at Duolingo and uh, the first one is learners first which is you know, the most important uh, operating principle. It's very similar to you know, Amazon's customer first. Um, but yeah, we care about users and learners. And of course, you've also had massive growth. So from starting as a computer science project, you now employ more than 500 people at Duolingo. And I also want to talk about these growth challenges. First of all, user acquisition. That's, of course, a big one because that's basically what you live from. So how do you acquire and win new users for Duolingo? Uh, it's interesting. Most of it is organic. It's just people, uh, they discover Duolingo. Um, word of mouth, uh, people share it with their friends. Um, it's, it's one of those things when you have a, a, you know, an engaging product, a really high quality product, people will just share it with their friends. So we don't pay for acquisition uh, much. We do have a, a small uh, you know, marketing budget and we, we do have marketing people as well. Um, and we do spend some money on, on the uh, acquisition of users, but the vast majority is, is basically word of mouth and the product speaks for itself. Well, talking about the product market fit or product hook, that's yeah. exactly what you wish for, right? <laughs> so then I also want to talk about your personal role. I can imagine from when you started in the early days as CTO, your day probably looks a bit different today with 500 employees. Can you talk about that transition, how it looked in the early days, your daily routines and jobs and what you're focusing on today? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think my, my job role has changed every single year. So at first, I was you know, um, basically implementing Duolingo, like I writing, was writing code. Right. And then you know, I, I moved more towards like reviewing other people's code. And then it became more uh, you know, system architecture 
Uh, and then it was more like reviewing system architecture. <laughs> and then at some point, it turned more into hiring and managing. And now I probably spend like 50% of my time with hiring, uh, hiring software engineers, but also other roles, uh, the executive team, board members, et cetera. So. And how do you train personally and, and also grow into these different roles? If that, that role changes every year, how do you keep up with that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we, <laughs> I, I got to say, we had early on, uh, a couple of years in, actually, we hired a, um, uh, uh, a person who is now our SVP of engineering, and I learned a ton from her. Like, I was not a manager. I didn't know how to manage. I didn't, you know, just didn't know how to do it. But I learned a lot from, from her, and, and, and she, she's absolutely great. So having people around you who've actually done it and who you can learn from to yep. train yep. and help Exactly. Hire the people to learn from. Yeah. And I also wonder, you know, with a growing company, you have more employees, you have also more investors and more customers, of course. Is there also an increasing pressure that you felt with the growth of the company? Uh, from, from whom? From you, from, from a personal side, that you felt, hey, now it's even more important that I do a good job and that you can handle everything. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, definitely a sense of responsibility uh, for, you know, the, the company, the, the employees that work at Duolingo, their families and, and the users, obviously, the, without, you know, the, the customers, there's no company. So, so yes, um, and investors too. So all, all stakeholders matter. And how did you always stay healthy as a founder? You know, everybody knows founder life can be quite challenging, also work hour-wise, stress-wise. How did you always stay healthy along the journey? Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> I have this principle. I have a bunch of, you know, we have these operating principles for the company and I have a bunch of personal principles. One of them is never compromise with sleep. And I actually started having that um, during my PhD. I was like, because I saw like other people or other PhD students that just would work so much and work so late and then, you know, compromise on sleep. And uh, I, I basically, that I sleep eight to nine hours every day. A lot of people are probably jealous of that, but um, that's the one thing I, I you know, protect. I'm curious, how do you then do that? Do you just leave work at the office and say, enough is enough, I go home and sleep now? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I rarely leave the office after uh, 7 p.m. these days, but early on it was a bit more stressful. Yeah. But I think that's a, a great role model to have to see, hey, sleep is important. It can also work with a lot of sleep. Yep. Now, I also want to focus on 2021 because that's the year when you actually went public with Duolingo at NASDAQ. And you currently have a market capitalization of around three and a half billion US dollars. Was going public always the goal for you? Um, it's not clear. Like early on, it was just a research project, right? right. <laughs> I just wanted to have this research pro project be successful uh, and then turn it into something bigger. Um, and, you know, my, my co founder, he actually had two previous exits. So he was kind of like, you know, financially secure, um, me a little bit less. But, <laughs> um, we, we always want to stay independent. One of our in the, uh, operating principles is uh, taking, take the long view. Um, and, you know, when you sell to a, someone else, like a bigger company, um, then, you know, you kind of lose that, right? So it's like, uh, you know, now you, you basically do what's best for that larger company versus, you know, we're still in control of Duolingo and we can do what we think is best for the long term. You said staying independent, but you took investors on quite early. Wouldn't that be a contradiction? Uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't say that. I, if you pick the right investors, um, which we had, you know, the luxury, uh, I think you can, you can align the thing, you know, you can align everything. And I'm very happy with our investors. And I think we have not compromised on our principles. And can you also share a bit more how you then made the decision and what you did afterwards when you decided to go for IPO? How does that process look like and how do you strategically build towards that milestone? 
Uh, I mean, strategically, like uh, you, you basically tell people that your plan is to go public mm -hmm. because people, especially uh, employees, they ask you like, "What is your exit strategy? Like, how do I, you know, ever make money from from the stock options you give me?" Right. Um, and and we just told them like we were just very transparent. Like, look, our, the plan is to IPO. We can't guarantee when it happens, um, and uh, just you know, take the long take the long view. We are all taking the long view. And uh, if, if, this, if this is not for you, then, you know, go work somewhere else. Um, but, but this is like, uh, yeah, the position we took. And why was a trade sale not a better option compared to going IPO? What, what do you mean trade sale? Like to a, sell the company to someone else. Like get acquired? Or, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, yeah, that, that, again, like that, then we would lose the independence and we wanted yeah. to keep the independence, yeah. The other thing, by the way, is also that, you know, at some point... Um, it becomes too expensive to get acquired, right? So sure. the potential acquirers, um, you know, need to be really, really big uh, to afford us. Um. Absolutely. Now, of course, everybody asks himself, you know, after this huge success, you know, going public at Nasdaq, having a booming business, what is next for Duolingo and also for you personally? What else do you want to tackle and achieve? Yeah, I mean, we're, the way we see it is like we're still like, you know, in the early days. Um, as I said, our mission is to provide the best education and make it universally accessible. It's not just language learning. Um, but even within language learning, we, we see just huge potential. Uh, I think we can teach much better to much higher levels of fluency uh, in the next couple of years. And, and then we also want to expand to other areas of education, uh, for example, math or, or um, learning the first language. Well, literacy. Yeah. So it still feels, although you just closed your, your IPO last year, you're still like at the beginning. Yep. <laughs> That's impressive. So to wrap up to today's uh, conversation, I have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you different options to choose from or a quick question. And I'm really excited to hear your answers. You ready? Okay. How many languages do you personally speak? Yeah, so um, three and a half, I would say. W so, which are those? Uh, well, German, English, uh, some French, and a little bit of Spanish. And which language would you most like to speak or be able to speak? Uh, Probably Chinese, but it's so hard to learn. <laughs> Why Chinese? Because it's um, an interesting business opportunity, or a lot of speakers, yeah. <laughs> and I think it, yeah, the the you know it's a, it's it's a very different language from the European languages. So, from your perspective, what needs to be gamified next? What needs to be gamified next? Um, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you can I mean, the, the things like, you know, for example, health, like, you know, dueling is actually similar, like motivation, you know, is, is similar to like health uh, apps and fitness apps and all that. But they're already gamified, <laughs> mostly. Um, but for some people, they still don't work. So I think there's still room for improvement. Yeah, yeah. So Duolingo for, uh, for health. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. And what else do you wish you could A-B test? Uh, government policies, you know, it's oh. interesting uh, that, uh, you know, we, we just went through this COVID thing and we don't really know like what government policies actually work best, right? Because we don't have a clean A-B test. We only have, you know, one country does this, but they might have, you know, completely different, um, uh, you know, environment or context. And, you know, the other country does this and we say, like, oh, this country did better than the other one. But we don't know why, because we don't have clean A-B experiments. Um, yeah. that, I, I'd love to see that in action. Who's your favorite investor in Switzerland? <laughs> Is that a plan to the question? <laughs> uh, Wingman Ventures. <laughs> and the last question for you, Switzerland or the United States? In, in terms of what? Overall choice, everything combined. <laughs>
Everything, oh, oh that, that's, uh, you can't ask that. <laughs> okay, then tell us your choice for Switzerland and when you would choose the United States. I mean, Switzerland is my home. <laughs> um, and, you know, probably will forever be my home. But, uh, you know, the U.S. is great for entrepreneurship. It's great for starting companies, great for business. Um, I love the U.S. too. So you're going to stay in the U.S. for just a little longer, I guess, then? Probably. Severian, time is flying. We're already on the clock. So thank you so much for joining and all the best for the future. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>